Hebrews chapter 10. Two weeks ago, of course not last week because of the weather, doing a little mini-series on Don't Quit. We want to continue that tonight by looking at a very famous passage of Scripture. We'll get there. I want to read two paragraphs and their framework for the middle section, which you're very familiar with, which is chapter 11. But let me start by reading chapter 10 and verse 32 of Hebrews. I think if you're using the Red Pew Bible, it's page 1007. But Hebrews 10:32, and then we're going to read Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Those are the framework verses. And you're going to look for the word endure or endurance tonight, because that's what we're going to talk about. Notice when we get to the end of this paragraph how it segues right into chapter 11. So you'll understand why chapter 11 has the word faith used 22 times. There's a reason why. It's not just to give an example of people who had faith. There's a reason. You'll see it. 10.32 reads, But recall the former days... When after you were enlightened, remember you just got saved, you endured a hard struggle. It's the word we get in English athletics from. And it's kind of like an athletic struggle. You're going to see that again in the next framework. With sufferings, and he's going to tell you what they are, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. That was the pu- sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. So sometimes you were mistreated and sometimes you were associated with people who were in prison. Remember how Jesus said, here's the test of, the, of sheep and goats. You visited me when I was in prison. He's not just saying that was no easy thing because you immediately gave yourself away as a Christian when you visited other Christians in prison, which could cost you everything. For you had compassion on those in prison. You, and watch, don't forget the joy And that's in both parts of the framework, too. And joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. When they took everything you had, you accepted. They didn't just sit, you know, complain and gripe. No, joyfully, it says. Since you knew that you had yourselves, key word in Hebrews, a better possession. Better is the key word. And an abiding one, which makes it better. Therefore, based on that, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, he says, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And then he's going to quote from Habakkuk, for yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. See, He's going to show you, if you're really righteous, even in the worst struggles and the difficult times, you will live by faith, and that faith looks like endurance. Now you know why Hebrews 11 is there. That's what they are examples of. And if he, now watch, and if he shrinks back, if you say you have faith, but the times, hard times come, and you shrink back and become a coward, and you don't do those things, hmm, here's what he says, My soul has no pleasure in him. What does that mean? He's going to tell you. Ready? For we are not of those who shrink back and what? Are destroyed. 
So there are two groups of people, the true Christians who have faith that endure through the worst times, and there are those who say they're Christians, but they're not, and the hardest times reveal what they really are, and they pull back in cowardice, and they don't keep the faith. But those of us who have faith, he says, other, and preserve their souls. See the difference? Now, the other part of the framework after chapter 11 is going to be the same thing. These verses are far more familiar to you. Therefore, chapter 12, verse 1, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, what kind of witnesses? Old Testament people, men and women, who had the kind of faith that no matter what they went through, their faith, they held on to it and they endured. And they didn't shrink back. That's the kind of faith they had. And who is the ultimate example of that? Oh, Jesus is. So let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And here's the athletic metaphor. And let us run, see it, with endurance. With endurance. The race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and completer or perfecter of our faith. See, here's the joy. See, it's the same thing. In other words, Jesus models. And so that's where these Christians get their joyfully accepting the plundering of their goods. And this is how they run the race. And you know why? Because they're looking at Jesus when they're doing it. For the joy set before him, what did he do? Well, he endured. So you endure because he endured, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, see it again, third time. Third time in three verses. Consider him who endured. From sinners, such hostility against himself. Here's why. So that you won't quit. That's how, that's the, that's the brunt of the message tonight. You grow weary and faint-hearted. See, how do you keep from quitting? Stop running. You don't finish. You got to keep your eyes on Jesus. You have to have endurance. 1914, Sir Ernest Shackleton organized a transatlantic expedition to cross Antarctica. Someone had already reached the North Pole, but no one had ever gone all the way across Antarctica, and he wanted to be the first. So his ship was called, and rightly so, and I'll tell you, it was called the Endurance. He set off just at the very beginning, at the same time of World War I. What he didn't know was one of the worst ice years Antarctica would have. 19, February 1915, the ship became frozen solid in sea ice. They were only one day's sail away from their final destination. They would have made it all the way there. They were one day away, and their ship got stuck in the ice. They couldn't get out of it. So they just didn't have any choice. They just kept drifting along wherever the ice went. They had to go with it, thinking that if they just waited it out, they're on the endurance, <laughs> Right? That they'll be fine. Summer will come. Again, this is February. Imagine having this kind of patience. February, summer will come and the ice will melt. Well, they waited and waited and waited. And they drifted and drifted further away from where they needed to go. Summer finally came. It didn't melt the ice. It cracked the floors of the ship when it expanded and pushed in. And so they got into trouble. It began to take on water. And it was bitter cold. And over the winter, while they were waiting and the ship was leaking, it was 24-hour darkness in Antarctica. Um, now beyond hope, because the ship was sinking, everything began to be taken off the ship so that they could survive without the ship. So they called the first place where they stayed, it was their first camp, and they called it Dump Camp. And they called it Dump Camp because they dumped everything off the ship and threw it on the ice. And they stayed there for just a little while, 
And then they moved a little bit further away. And they called the second place where they stayed for about a month was Ocean Camp. And it was closer to the ocean, but still in view of the ship, which they one day watched the entire thing sink into the Antarctic Ocean. So they're in Antarctica. It's barely light out at all. They have no radio. They have no one who even knows they're there, much less in trouble. So he wrote, it was beyond hope and beyond rescue. They stayed at Ocean Camp for another month. And then they decided they were going to try to make it to Elephant Island. They had to go under what most people would call unnegotiable ice. And they had to do it for weeks. And I'm talking unnegotiable ice, meaning most of the ice pieces, small ice pieces that had to continually climb for miles, tens, over 100 miles, were six feet tall. So imagine that trip. Finally, they got to the edge of the water that went to Elephant Island, and they were already 497 days into this trip. Eventually, after having the boats with them the whole time, they were able to reach Elephant Island after being on the water for four months. Can you imagine? Two years into the trip, they made it to Elephant Island and were rescued. Two years. Now, I don't know about you, but that was pretty much amazing that that ship was called Endurance because that's what they had to do. Now, I thought about that and I thought, you know what, have you ever had to spend some time on a ship called Endurance yourself? I mean, metaphorically in your life. I mean, ever thought things in your life were, as he wrote in his journal, beyond hope? You ever have to watch your own sip ship sink in life and the things that you had dreamed of your ambitions desires things you really wanted to have happen just in one day are gone have you ever had to a few days a few weeks a few months i wrote down a few years had to spend time at patience camp i mean with non-negotiables that you can't get past you say, Pastor Walker, I've lived there, and maybe you've been in that kind of a marriage for a long time. Maybe you say, I've been there, and I'm still there. I face chronic issues that I think are insurmountable health issues. I work there, Pastor Walker. I mean, that's my job every day. My boss, no promotions, dead-end street, but I've got nothing else to go to. And all I have the option of is endurance. You can't read this text in chapter 10 and 12 and not come to the conclusion that every single Christian, no matter who you are, at one point in your life, if not more than that, will need endurance and a lot of it. That's why this passage has endurance twice in 10, 32, and 36. 12, 1, 2, 3, I'd even read it also in verse 7. And he says, every Christian will need it. I mean, for them... It was almost right away, right after they get saved in their former days, it says, they had a hard struggle. And the temptation, listen, and the temptation for all of us, and perhaps you tonight, is that the harder things get, the more you're tempted to shrink back, to pull back, to not be involved, to not come to church, to not be in the Word, to not have that relationship that you once had with the Lord. And what you learn from this text, and both of them, and in in Hebrews 11, is that the Christian life is not a sprint. It's a marathon. I looked up the origin of the marathon. 
And a guy named Pheidippides, he was a runner who went from Marathon, which was a city, and he ran from Marathon to Athens after a battle to tell the people and the headquarters at Athens, so to speak, that the Persians had lost and they had won. And it was about a 25-mile run. And he did it in a day. And when he got into the city, entered the gates, according to history, he yelled Nike, which is the same we get Nike tennis shoes from. And it means victory. And he dropped over dead. (laughs) Because he basically killed himself running all that way to get there. In 1898, the Olympics were restarted. And in 1908, I believe it was, they had the Olympics in London. And the marathon distance was from Windsor Castle to White City Stadium. And that was about 26 miles. And they added an additional 385 yards because... They wanted you to run into the stadium and right up to the royal box where the royal family was. God forbid that they'd get out and do any walking or anything, but you had to run right up there. So it was 26.2 miles, and it stuck. And that's the distance until this day. A marathon. A marathon is a race that you need endurance. When I was my senior year in college, I lived in London with my parents, And my dad got a trainer for me so that I could get in shape for my last year. And the girl was from Scotland, and she worked for my dad, and she was a marathon runner. And so she was five foot tall and 91 pounds. That's all she was. So my dad introduced me to her, and I said, I thought you got me a trainer. And I said, I did. There she is. I said, Dad, she's littler than my sister. And my sister was only about 10. And he said, oh, no, you won't, you won't think that after you train with her. I go, really? Okay. So I was a senior in college. I thought I was in pretty good shape. So she said, let's go. Of course, I couldn't understand half what she said with the Edinburgh. The accent was unbelievable. But anyways, so she started running. And halfway around the, it was five miles around uh, Hyde Park in London. And it was beautiful. You could run in there. So I'm not even halfway there, and I'm dying. So here's what she does. I'm running as fast as I can to keep up with her. So she starts running backwards. I said, that's embarrassing. And a little bit of that, I just stopped. I said, I can't do anymore. So little did I I know, she told me she ran five minute and 45 second miles for 26 miles. And I told her, I haven't run one mile at five minutes and 45 seconds. But she told me, I said, how do you do it? And literally she said to me, one step at a time. I figured it out. If you run a marathon and the average step is 30 inches, you're going to run 55,334 steps. So that one step at a time thing didn't help me a lot because that's a lot of steps. But let me tell you this. You know what it means? That you have to be ready for it. You have to have endurance. That's why he said hard struggle. It's in athletics. Race in the Bible often is the Greek word Agony. Agony. Because in the, in, the, in the New Testament times, to be an athlete was to have agony. And so here's the problem. You have agony in your life. It's your job. It's your health. It's your marriage. It's your relationship. It's financial. Agony comes when we struggle in life. And the temptation is shrink back. Let me put it in racing terms. 
to stop running. See, I ran around the park the first time, and I wanted to stop running because I wasn't going to be able to keep up with her. Right? It was too hard. I was breathing so heavy, I couldn't do it. By the end of the summer, I wasn't running 545, but I was running 6 minute and 15 second miles, which was close to what she did for five miles, right? I'd never been in such good shape in my life. But I tell you this, you know, I had to do a little bit better every day, every day. See, maybe you're here tonight and you're struggling and it's easy to stop running. Runners, when they hit a certain place in the marathon, they call it hitting the wall. Now, the scientific thing is lactic acid replaces the glycogen in your muscles And they say, I read the articles, that you know when it happens because you feel as if you can't survive even one more step. Have you ever felt that spiritually? I wrote down, not one more shift at this lousy job. Not one more day in this way too long marriage already. Not one more moment of pain, not one more pill, not one more shot, not one more doctor's office visit, not one more surgery, not one more minute of this emotional stress or turmoil or inner pain, not one more. Have you ever felt that way? See, endurance in the Bible is not just getting through a tough time. It's not just overcoming a rough patch in your life. See, biblically, endurance is going through all of that and at the same time keeping your faith. And that's what Hebrews 11 is for. Hebrews 11 bracketed between two passages on endurance, one about Christians enduring and one about Jesus enduring, tells us that this is how God wants us to get through life when there's a lot of struggles. He wants you to, by faith, learn to endure Um, Paul Stoltz wrote a book, and the book was called Adversity Quotient. And in the book, he points out that for many, many years, the prominent measure of potential in a person's life was called their IQ, their intelligent quotient. But he came to the realization, after a lot of research, but there are too many people who have high IQs that are absolute failures in life. And he wanted to understand why. How can you be so smart... But do so poorly. So Paul Stoltz began to study and he came up with this that something, a better way to measure someone's success in life was not their IQ, but their AQ, their adversity quotient. He says it's people not with the highest IQ, but people who can endure difficulties the best. So in the book, he said it's how much a person can endure. That is the difference in whether they're successful in life. And what I did is I I find as you study Hebrews 11 is that a lot of the characters in Hebrews 11, I would say, have a very high AQ. I don't know about their IQ, but they have a high AQ. I mean, how long did it take for Moses, I mean Moses, Noah to build the ark? 120 years. So you thought it was hard at your job. Now, it says the whole time, everybody was on his back persecuting him, telling him how stupid he was. And he endured, and he, building a boat when it hadn't rained. I mean, I don't know about you, but that's a hard call. 
120 years. Abraham and Sarah were told by God, you're going to have a child. And how long did they wait? Two and a half months? No, two and a half years. How about two and a half decades? That's enduring, isn't it? When God makes a promise to you and it doesn't come true, not right away. I mean, like it's not going to come true. Joseph was going to be elevated. He had these dreams about how great he was going to be. But yet, yet what happens? He gets sold into slavery, right? Now, kid's only 17. He's in, prison, he's in, in Egypt doing his best. He's been blessed by Potiphar, and then he gets accused of a crime he didn't do, and he goes to prison, right, for a couple years. He finally gets out, and by the time he becomes what the dreams were foretold that he was going to be, it had been 13 years. 13 years. I bet he never saw that as part of the dream. And then it says, Moses endured the anger of the king, Daniel endured the lion's den. They don't name them. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're there. But it says the fiery furnace. And then it just says a category at the end of Hebrews 11, verse 34 and following. It says others. Listen to what they endured. Mocking, torture, prison, death. Isaiah, it says, was saw a sawn asunder. And that means he was put into a tree log and cut in half. I mean, Hebrews 11 are built on examples of people who were struggling and had it hard. And they didn't just get through a rough patch. I mean, it was really bad, but they kept their faith. Now, the question is tonight, if you're in that rough patch, you're in that tough spot, and you're struggling, and you're beginning to question things, maybe God and his word, and you're wondering when the promises are going to hit for you, the question is, how do you keep going? How do you finish the marathon? Well, there's that key word I mentioned, remember? Better. You have to be, hear me, you have to be a person who can make comparisons. I'm going to read them for you. Don't try to follow them in your Bible. Hebrews 6.9 says that there are better things to come. 7.19, we have a better hope. 7.22, we have a better covenant. 8.6, Jesus is a better mediator who offers better promises. 9.23, he is a better sacrifice. 10.34, we give up our possessions because we have a better possession. 11.16 said they, keep, they kept going because they have a better country they were looking forward to. 11.35, they had a better life, something better than all of this, it says in 11.40. And Abel offered a better word than that of Cain, 1224. And the whole theme of it from the beginning to the end of this book is better, 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 better. And let me tell you this. You will not be able to endure and you will not finish the race until you come to the place in your life that no matter what you are going to, and you can name them all out there, you have to come to the place no matter what's on this side of the scale, no matter what part of the equation this involves. You have to be able to say in comparison, and Jesus is better than that. So the question tonight is, is he better than all that you're going through right now? Is Jesus better than financial security? Is Jesus better than having good health? Is Jesus better than landing your dream job, living happily ever after? 
fulfilling your goals and aspirations, being accepted, popular, or praised by others? Is he better than having children? Is he better than living for yourself during the last years of your retirement? Is he better? See, if you can't say that, you're going to struggle. Because that's exactly what everyone in Hebrews 11 said. He's better. His promises is better. His sacrifice is better. The hope you have in him is better. The covenant is better. Everything about Jesus is better. But see, that's the hard thing, isn't it? When you are struggling every single day and the agony doesn't go away and you're living at patience camp and the ice is crushing everything that you hold dear. See, to say that Jesus is better and all you want is just a little relief, just a little break from all the adversity that you're facing. What is your AQ tonight? In chapter 12, if you're not there, turn there, please. Verses 1 through 3. I want to tell you something tonight about why it's good that you came to church. Because 12.1 says this. This is before we get to Jesus, the, the best marathon runner ever. It says, therefore, right, based on the previous chapter, since we are, see it, surrounded by so great a cloud of martyrs, that's the word, people who gave up their life, witness to the fact that Jesus is better. He says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely to us. Can I tell you, look at this, hear me. Endurance and keeping your faith is a community project. I'm going to tell you this, you will struggle and probably not make it if you do it on your own. Do you know why you need to come to church? And you know why you need to come to all the services? Not because it makes our church bigger and we can brag about numbers and all that stupidity. You know why? Because you need to. You need to. You know why? Because you need to rub shoulders, talk with, pray with, see people struggling and making it to the finish line and running and keeping the faith because the whole stadium, it says, was filled with all these heroes of the Old Testament. And Hebrews 11 catalogs them and names them all. And it says, see you first century runners, don't run as if no one has ever run before you. Look around you at the stadium. See Moses and Noah and Joseph and, and, and Sarah and Abraham. See them cheering you on because they ran. It wasn't easy. They made mistakes. They sinned, but they made it and they finished. And so can you, is the idea. So we need each other. That's why, I, can I tell you, read biographies. When I, before I went into the ministry, I read the biography of Charles Simeon, a Puritan pastor in the 1700s, which followed a great pastor, which was super popular. And then he came in that, that church and his people kind of didn't like him at first because his pastor preceding him was a hard act to follow. So back in the day when you were a Puritan church, they had these levers that came down like this, like an arm, and it would lock the pew so that this space was not there. So if you wanted to get in and when it was locked, obviously you'd have to climb over, right? That's what they did because you weren't allowed to unlock it. See, you had places, if you ever go to the... Um, 
Philadelphia, Washington, other places, they have churches just like the Puritans had. You had to be a member to sit in the pew. They locked them. So you couldn't just get in. You couldn't just come in like everybody comes in and sits where they want. That ain't happening. You had your own pew because you were a member, blah, 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 and they locked it, right? So Charles Simeon becomes the pastor. Second year in, they didn't want him to be there anymore. See what they did? When you came to church, they locked all the pews, and they wouldn't unlock them for anybody. Zero. They thought, wow, if no, all the pews are locked, they won't come. So if you wanted to stay, and they did, Charles Simeon had people stand in the aisles and listen to him from the back. There was no pews to sit in. And don't worry, they didn't do it very long, only from his second year to the 12th year. On the 12th year, they finally unlocked the pews. They finally started to get used to him a little bit. Until on the 14th year, he was walking home from church one night, and one of his parishioners tried to kill him. So you think after locking the pews for 10 years, someone trying to kill you, the guy would get the message, time to move on. See, he was there 14 years. He didn't stay much longer. He finished that ministry after being there for 50 years. You know why? Because Charles Simeon had endurance. See, this Sunday for me will be 23 years, so that means you have 27 more years of me. <laughs> Go ahead and lock the pews. I don't really care. It's Charles Simeon. Read John Patton, who had children die one after another. His wife died on the New Hebrides Islands. He spent nights in the trees when the cannibals were running around down there in the bottom of the, of the jungle floor trying to kill him. But he stayed there. And the entire island came to know Jesus. Hudson Taylor. I can tell you story after story about missionaries and pastors and Christians who endured. You know why? Because we need that. We need to surround ourselves with great clouds of witnesses. Because we need to be cheered on, don't we? We need to be encouraged. Here's why. Because when you're running the race, he says, you got to let go, take off every weight that so is clings to you. Now, I'm not going to be graphic, but in the New Testament times, in the secular world, you didn't run with clothes on because they didn't want anything bothering them. You couldn't run as fast. So the idea is, if you're a Christian, you got sin, and you start wearing that sin, you need to take it off because it's going to slow you down. Can I tell you this? Some of the people, of God's people at times, you know why they don't finish and they get so bogged down and overburdened? Because they're holding on to sin and thinking that you can run and hold on to that sin at the same time. And here's what, here's what Paul says, I believe, in Hebrews. you got to let that stuff go. Take it off. You're not going to finish. It's going to slow you down. And maybe for some, that's the internet sites you look at. The materialism that plagues you. The bitterness and anger and unforgiving spirit on the inside. See, you can't run and finish holding on to that stuff, he says. So endurance is a community project. Endurance is absolutely needed to fight sin. If you're going to let go of stuff and sprint to the finish line, you're going to have to let it go. And then he gets to chapter 3. I mean, verse 3, I'm sorry, verse 2, it says, looking to Jesus, look at, now draw a line from looking to Jesus to verse 3, it says, consider him, and they both mean to look at a long glance. In other words, not just a quick, you know, shot of looking at him, keep your eyes on him, keep focusing on him. And the word consider even gives the idea of making a calculation. In other words, look at it and, and learn from it, he says. 
Now, I want to point out something in the text. Look at it. Verse 1 says, Let us run with endurance the race and circle it that is set before us. See that? Now, the identical phrase is going to be used in the next verse, but this time about Jesus. Look at it. He's the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, see it, that was set before him. Set before us, set before him. This is not a race that happened by accident. The word set means someone actively, not passively, actively set up this race. We say, well, okay, Pastor Walker, that's great. What does that matter? Here's why it matters. See, listen, every single thing in the life of Jesus, every aspect of the race that he ran, because he was the originator, listen, and the finisher of it, he completed it. See, he finished the race, even though it was agonizing. Can I tell you this? He had a race that was set before him. It means this. It was no accident. Every part of Jesus' race was divinely appointed. That means betrayed by Judas, appointed. Denied by Peter, appointed and planned by God. The mocking, the scourging, the beating with the rod, the cat of nine tails, the cross, the nails, the thorns, the spear, every single part, every crying that tear came out of every blood that dripped down his body, every lash, all of it, part of his race. Now listen, that's not just true of him. That's why the phrases are identical. He says, let us run with endurance, what? The race that's been set before us. Tonight, you know why the struggles you face, whatever form they take, they're not accidental. They're designed for you by God. He made those struggles for you. He put them in your life because he wants you to depend on him. He wants to grow your faith. He wants to mature you. He wants to make you a marathon runner and build endurance into your life. Listen, he may even do it because he wants you to be a stadium person for someone else. Someone that, oh, wow, look at her. Look how she endured. Look at him. Wow, I can't believe he could have that kind of patience. See, maybe he's building it in because he wants to use your life. He wants other runners to look at you and say, I think I can make it. I think I can make it. When you run the Boston Marathon, and I never have, never will, if you get to mile 20, they have what's called Heartbreak Hill. It is a half-mile incline. And they call it Heartbreak Hill because you're so far into the race that you are exact, you're exhausted. And they said you're completely tired, and the hill is so steep and so tough that there are people there at their weakest moment have to face that hill and they quit, and they give up. Have you ever had a heartbreak hill? Have you ever told Jesus on your knees, I'm so tired, I can't do this anymore? There's no way. You come, you say, Lord, look how far I've run, and you want me to climb what? That? Now? Are you kidding me? You ever said that? And so many Christians quit on their heartbreak hill, and they just don't finish. If you read a magazine called Runner's World, there's a story in it by, of a lady named Beth Ann Siantis. She was trying to qualify as a marathon runner for the American Olympic team. 
In order to do so, she had to run the 26.2 miles in any time less than two hours and 45 minutes. That was the female time that you had to beat to qualify. She had a great start. She was doing awesome until mile 23. And she started to struggle. She uh, was in the final straightway, had enough time to finish. There were, she was at two hours and 43 minutes. She, was on, she turned the bend and could see the finish line. She had two minutes. And she was doing great until she stumbled and fell. And she felt, I don't know, I've never felt that tired, but she fell down and was completely exhausted. And she was so tired, she lay there for 20 seconds, not even knowing if she could get up. Everyone, you know, at the end, everyone's there. And, and, and I read the magazine, everyone's shouting, get up, <laughs> get up. Finally, she gets up. She ran a little bit further, still had time to finish. Five yards from the finish line, she fell down again. She hit the ground with 10 seconds left. And the magazine article says, by this time, people are leaning over the tape on the side of the fence, and they are literally right next to her screaming, get up. She couldn't get up, but she could crawl. And she did. She crawled and reached out and put her hand over the finish line with two seconds left and qualified. Now, I'm not lying to you. I thought about, wow, have you ever felt like that? You got people telling you, get up. Come on, you can do it. Get going. And you're going, oh, I don't know if I can. And you're on your knees, literally, right? And you can see the finish line. I mean, you're like putting your hand out there to make it. And maybe that's, see, but she qualified. She finished. She never quit. She never quit. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. You see, Jesus had a heartbreak hill. It was called Calvary. The hill called Calvary. And let me tell you this. In his weakest moment, he climbed it. And he finished, listen, for you and me. He endured the cross, despising the shame And at the finish line, he sat down at the right hand of God and was enthroned. See, that's his race is your race. See, you can make it up your heartbreak hill. You can, but not by yourself with everybody's help and by keeping your eyes on Jesus. And that's why verse 3 says, and that's how you stop from growing weary and becoming faint-hearted. That's how you keep from quitting. See, you got to keep your eye on the finish line, listen, and on the finisher, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I, perhaps tonight there are those here who have been running and have done so well for so long, but recently perhaps, and maybe longer than recently, They've been hitting the wall. They're now facing Heartbreak Hill. They think they're so close, but they're not sure they can make it. My prayer tonight is that you'd help them to keep their eyes on Jesus. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for climbing Calvary's hill for us. 
enduring the slaps and the spit and the mocking and the doubt and the hate and the abuse. But you still finished. And you said on the cross, it is finished. And because you finished your race, see, we can finish ours in your strength. And I pray that tonight those who are here would do that. Keep the faith. And we might be able to say with the Apostle Paul, I have fought a good fight. I finished my race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown, which is righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not to me only, but to all them also who have loved your appearing. Jesus, we can't wait to stand before you when you come again and we stand before the judge at the end of the race and you give us the crown, which is life. Help us to run the race with endurance until then. For it's in your matchless name we pray. Amen.